All right, let's take your Bibles. Are you ready? We're going to do some selected scripture today. I'm going to give you a little bit of background into Ireland. And so uh, let me just run through some of these real quick. A submarine, the submarine was invented in Ireland. You're thinking, I don't care about that. Why are you telling me that? I just thought it was interesting. All right, here's a little bit of trivia. What big boat was built in Ireland? And don't say the love boat. The Titanic was built in Ireland. Ireland is a snake-free, do I hear an amen? Snake-free, that is like snakes not on the island. In Ireland, people are like, amen in that. There's revival breaking out all of a sudden. They have the oldest maternity ward still in operation. Started in 1745. 70 million people claim Jewish ancestry. Does anybody, you want to claim some of that 70 million? Raise your hand. Nobody Irish except for me in the house? Really? Seriously, Irish, anybody? Any ancestry? There we go. Good, 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 good. We got the Irish area over there. It's known as the Emerald Isle. When a child has a birthday, they pick the child up and they put his head, they bang his head up against the birthday cake, gently. A little tradition there. You might want to try it out here. 9% of Irish people have red hair. Now, how many people thought that Irish people all had red hair, right? Did you ever think that? Nine, only 9% have actually red hair. The patron saint of Ireland is who? Does anybody know? Yeah, it's St. Patrick. I, I got some fi- uh, pictures here. I want to show them if you could bring those up there. This is my wife now. We had the chance. This was a, bu- a bucket list item for a long time, and my, my dad and my stepmother were so gracious to provide for us a trip to Ireland. This is some years ago. And so uh, we, were, we were there. I uh, spent probably a week on the Emerald Isle. Why don't you go to the next slide, please? Uh, Lisa's about ready to kiss the Blarney Stone, Blarney Castle there. Um, that's me over here, and I'm looking at him going like, dude, you have me, right? You're holding on to me because you could fall and like to your death. No, I'm just kidding. They have like a little cage there. You can see it underneath me. The next uh, slide, there we go. Here we are at the Cliffs of Moher on the left-hand side, and then again over at the Blarney Castle over on the right. Phenomenal, just a, a tremendous trip. Let me go back to St. Patrick because I'm going to tie this into what we're going to learn today. St. Patrick was kidnapped at six years old by Irish raiders and became a slave in Ireland for six years. He escaped, and then he made his way back to his homeland. While he was home, he embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then went back to Ireland as a missionary. This is what he said in one of his journal entries. He said that he was utterly, I'm quoting, utterly confident in the Lord that God was leading his life, that God was guiding his life. And we're gonna call that the providence of God, and that's the title of the message, the providence of God. So first week of our series, we looked at Greece and the wisdom of God, and then last Sunday, we looked at Canada, and more specifically, Niagara Falls and the power of God. I wanna look at the same, take the same approach with this, answer two questions with you. What is the providence of God? And what does this providence of God have to do with our life? It was the providence of God that led Patrick from his homeland back to that land where he was traumatized as a young person. It was the providence of God or the government of God or God governing his life down to every detail that he believed with all of his heart that he could say, I'm utterly confident that this is God. Now, if you know anything about the history of Ireland or St. Patrick's influence, it was phenomenal. Thousands upon thousands of people in Ireland were becoming born again. Revival broke out. In fact, the Irish people would attribute Christianity coming to Ireland to St. Patrick, the providence of God, God moving 
in his life to bring him back to the island where he experienced so much pain as a young person. And this is how God does things. If you're going through pain and trauma as St. Patrick did, know that God is the redeemer of all of that, that he takes it, he reforms it, and then he sends you into a place of ministry or influence or impact that will be far greater than if you have not experienced the trauma in your life. Patrick understood that. Patrick understood the providence of God and what it meant. Now, when we look at our own society and our own country, what kind of words are describing God? What kind of words are describing the way that God guides a person? Maybe not even God. Let's take God out of the equation. When we look at life circumstances, what are some of the terminologies that people use? Coincidence. I heard coincidence. Or maybe somebody will say uh, something like this. Good what? Good luck? Good luck? I heard that recently from uh, one of my family members. And um, when you're talking about good luck, you're talking about the antithesis of providence. Now, that doesn't mean that you go up to somebody and you can say, well, well good providence, <laughs> you know, instead of good luck. But Christians are so used to luck and saying luck. And really what that is, it's a denial of the providence or the government of God, of the oversight of the sovereignty of the Lord moving in and through somebody's life down to every detail. And now what we're doing is we're adapting the world's method or, or maybe terminology, I should say, when we say something like good luck. So what are you getting so hung up on luck and why Christians shouldn't say luck? Well, we, we should believe more strongly in the providence of the Lord. Nothing is by chance. So we got coincidence, we got chance, we have luck. There's one more word that people would use. How about fate? Have you ever heard that, fate? And so we're not talking about those. We're talking about the providence of God. So what is it? That's the first question. It's only used one time in Scripture in Acts 24, 2, the word providence. In fact, if you were to look at that, which I don't want you to, the word is foresight. and It's a good word. It's an accurate word. But what I want to try to do at the front end of this first question is try to really give a position on providence based theologically. And any theology needs to be based off the word of God. You don't want a theology of man. You don't want man's perspective on things. You want, you want God's perspective on, on things. And you build a theology off of that. It's super important that we do that. I'm going to try to do that. And I'm going to be quoting some people that I really believe are solid biblical theologians to help us understand what providence is. Here's, the, here's just the word broken down. Pro means forward and provide. Vide is to see or providio, to see forward. R.C. Sproul, I think I have this on the screen. I'm gonna quote him. God's seeing something beforehand. That's John Piper. I'll go to that one too. Let's do that. Go back to the other one to John Piper. He said this, and I love this by John uh, Piper, the act of providing and governing the universe by God. So we have R.C. and John, uh, both reputable, godly men, solid theologians. It was R.C. Sproul that said this. He called the providence of God his invisible hand, his invisible hand. Let's go to the Heidelberg Catechism, if you would pull that up. This was written in 1563. This was in reaction to uh, the Council of Trent. This was the Catholic Church was strong, uh, and it was, it was powerful. It was the most powerful church. And so the reformers and those who were believing in evangelical Christianity and the gospel were reacting to, to all of this, and so they had these catechisms that they would write. Catechism is really training up a child in the way that they should go. A catechism in that day in medieval times would have been vacation Bible school on steroids. It's an intense indoctrination of the beliefs of the Bible so that children at very young ages can understand really who God is and how God works in the universe. 
So the Heidelberg Catechism obviously was written in what country? Can you tell? Germany. So let's look at this. The Almighty, this is what they said, the Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, remember the invisible hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's, that's written, obviously, in a kind of an old style of word usage. But I want you to see inside of that that these people really had a strong grasp on the providence of God, that God's hand is actually guiding our lives down to every single detail. Patrick knew that. He went back to Ireland and experienced the move of God's spirit in a very powerful and profound way. So let's say it like this. We, I'm gonna try to put this uh, in these terms. I think it's, it's understandable, especially in, in our country. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., uh, you would go down there and you would understand um, that we are, we are represented by the government, right? And so you would go down there, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, uh, all of the White House, obviously, the Capitol, all of that is just saying to the American people that there is a government that is overseeing our country, and we're putting a, a lot of faith and a lot of trust in the government to make sure that we're well taken care of and our lives are sustained. Would that be true? And so that's what the government's all about. That's what the government is supposed to be. And so we're taking this, this kind of an idea here and kind of turning it into a theological perspective on God government, God's government and his governing over our lives. Here's R.C. Sproul. I think I have this one up on the screen. The God who sees and the God who hears is the God who cares. If you believe he sees you, everything about your life, that could be a terrifying thought because we could be doing things that we shouldn't be doing. He still sees that, but this is kind of taking the angle that he sees our life because he really does love and care for us. And if he sees something ahead of time, which he does because he's sovereign and he is, he's the God of providence, he sees it, it's foresight, then what he sees coming, he is also going to provide everything that is going to be experienced in, that, in your life at that particular point. In other words, some of the pain that you've gone through, God saw it. You're saying, then why didn't God stop it? Well, then you go back to the sovereignty of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord. Was God powerful enough to stop it? Yes or no? Well, sure, if he's all powerful, he could have stopped it. Then why didn't he stop it? Well, then you go back to the wisdom of the Lord. See, this is all about faith. This is all about the trauma. And when you were abused by your mother, your father, and all of that, you still fall under. Go underneath the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the power of God, and then grasp a hold of the providence of the Lord. They all go together to be able to understand and receive them. I love this, William Cooper. William Cooper was a tremendous po poet. A lot of his poems turned into songs. What, what you might not know about William Cooper, and uh, he was mentored and influenced by John Newton. Are you familiar with John Newton? Uh, John Newton wrote a, a great hymn. What's the name of that hymn? Did everybody have their coffee today? Because I, I hear about three people. Everybody else is sleeping, right? Yeah, Amazing Grace. So John Newton influenced William Cooper. William Cooper struggled with incredible, incredible depression. So if any of you have struggled with depression, and I've had my moments of depression, or you could call that melancholy, uh, then you're not alone. William Cooper was a, a tremendous man of God who loved Jesus, but yet he struggled through those seasons of despair and of, of doubt and of, of depression. 
I want you to see what he says here in this God works in mysterious ways. Are you familiar with that song or that poem? If you're not, this is gonna be a little bit of a history lesson, so let's go through it. He said this. Now remember, this guy is going through battle after battle, trying to understand his life, all of the trauma he's experienced, all of the loss and the pain that he went through. And so he comes to some of these conclusions. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't turn on God and say, God, this isn't fair. This isn't good. You're unrighteous to me. Don't do that, he's saying. And he wanted to do it a thousand times. He keeps going. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning what? Providence. He hides a smiling face. Darkness came over as a flood in my life, my wife's life. And William Cooper was, was speaking to me. And I started to see that the cloud cover had come over. It was dark, couldn't see the next steps of our life. Despair was entering in, depression entering in, all sorts of battles with the supernatural and against demonic forces. So when he wrote this, did he even know that hundreds of years later, there'd be a person like myself and like you that is gonna receive this and go, thank you, Lord because I know that you see my life, every detail, and you know exactly what you're doing to provide everything that I need. It's fantastic. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it what? He'll make it plain. He'll make it plain. The providence of the Lord, William Cooper, understanding it. It saved him. It'll save you. It truly will. I love this. It's been said by someone. I don't have the, the person who actually said it. I don't have that quote, so I, I can't give it to you, but I was reading it in a book recently on the providence of God, and he said this. It's, providence is that continuous work of God by which the, he maintains the things which he created. It's wonderful. I'm gonna bring up a, a city here. It's a city in Rhode Island. Does anybody know the name of this city? Yeah, it's Providence, Rhode Island. So if you've ever been up in New England, I would encourage, it's, it's definitely a, one of those summer vacation bucket list destinations, New England. Providence was, uh, before all of the buildings you're seeing there, was uh, just a field. It was just an open area. And so it was, um, it was Roger Williams, one of the, the founders of Providence, who was traveling uh, from England over to here and was being persecuted. And they came over here uh, to find religious freedom. And so they landed. And obviously, they're looking for a place. And they found this place that would be perfect for their settlement and they realized it was God's hand, it was God's providence that was guiding every step of their life. And so when they were, you know, founding the city, they called it providence. 
Here's a, a song you might be familiar with if you're from kind of the, the hymn background. This is a, a hymn. Can you throw that up there? I think I have it. His Sevilla. Does this sound familiar? Sevilla Martin, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Are you familiar with that song? His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. Isn't it coming to you right now? Do you want to sing it out loud? Do you? Can we just go through this really quick? His eye is on the sparrow. Remember, not even a bird or, or falls to the ground without God knowing about that. Do you remember that text? I think it's in Matthew in the Gospels. Every detail of our life is what the author of this song, and William Cooper was saying the same thing, and, and the Heidelberg Catechism is saying the same thing, and Sproul and Piper, they're all saying the same thing, that God is, his eye, his foresight is looking ahead at your life, and he knows what he's gonna do down the road, even though that period of your life is gonna be traumatic and very difficult. He's gonna sustain you through that. That's what he's talking about. So you can sing because you're happy. How do you stay happy in the midst of hardship? The providence of the Lord. Grabbing a hold of that God is who he says he is, that he is faithful and good and he is a, a righteous God. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go to Acts chapter 17. I'm gonna go through some verses with you on this first question, then we'll move to the second question. Acts 17, verses 24, down to verse uh, 28. So either tap on it uh, or go to it. What did I say, Acts 17? This is the Apostle Paul. He's in Athens. And as he enters Athens, he notices that there are very religious people. There's a spirit of religion in Athens. <laughs> and before we think that only the spirit of religion is only in Athens, there's a spirit of religion in many places. They're in cities, they're in counties, they're in people's homes. So Paul is going into a, a very, very interesting dynamic here as he's gonna give the gospel and try to lead people to the Lord and try to convince people like the Epicureans. You'll see that back in the uh, previous verses, 18. Verse 18 talks about the Epicurean. These are philosophers, Stoic philosophers. They conversed. This is what they did. They had all of these teachings and all of these beliefs that uh, were, were prevalent. In fact, Epicureanism is still today. Uh, people believe that, that God is distant, uh, that, that God is somehow removed from the ongoing uh, details of our life. This is some of their belief. They denied a lot of the core and orthodox doctrines of the faith. And so Paul is dealing with this, but we deal with it today. It's, it's not gone away. Epicureanism still today. I had a teenager who was studying Epicureanism, uh, and they were influencing another teenager. And so the one teenager was confused, and they asked me, so what is this? Epicure? Who is Epicurious? Epicurious. And so I did a little bit of research for them and help them to understand that this is nothing new. Paul's going into Athens, and he's dealing with this. And as he's moving through the city, it's a spirit of religion. And listen, behind every spirit, we're talking about a demon. We're talking about if, there, if you've been gripped by the spirit of religion, like heavy legalism, heavy legalism is a spirit of religion. That's what that is. And so that needs to, you need to be delivered from that, freed from that. A stronghold needs to be broken because that spirit had gotten into your life somehow. I want you to look at these verses because Paul is gonna talk about something here about the providence of God. In verse 24, the God who made the world, so God is sovereign because God is the one who is over the world. He's the one that spoke it into existence, Paul said. 
and everything in it. Keep going through the text with me. Being Lord of heaven, there's his, his, his sovereignty over his creation and earth, and he does not live in temples made by man. In other words, he's not dependent on man. We're dependent on, on God. We're dependent in some form on other men or mankind. But God is not dependent on man. He is independent. Here's where we have our problems. We want to become too independent, and we separate ourselves. We separate ourselves from God, his influence. We separate ourselves from the, the means that God has given, like his church and, and other believers and pastors. You separate from the means that God has given you you have become too independent. And that's the culture that we live in. God is the only one who is truly free. We're not truly free. We are dependent on him and in some ways each other. So he goes on. Nor is anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. There's his providence. This is his sustaining his creation. If he created it, he's going to sustain it. If he created you and he recreated you in conversion, then it stands to reason he's going to take care of you all along the way. That's providence. So Paul wants his readers or his hearers anyway to understand this. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. There it is. I love this. This is wonderful. He wants these people who believe in Epicureanism, Stoic philosophers. God is distant. God is not involved. God doesn't care about your life. God is so far out there that he's not even seeing what's going on in your world. That's what they believe. Paul comes on the scene and he says, no. God is the one who created everything. He created you. And if he created you, he's going to take you all the way through your earthly existence and bring you all the way to heaven. I don't know if they were grasping it fully in that moment of time. Paul goes on, and he goes on in Corinthians. If you'll go to Corinthians, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice how he deals with the Corinthian church, with the same kind of thing. So go to chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. He's going to talk about idols and food offered to idols. Verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This is verse 1, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And this knowledge puffs up. you got a very carnal church, the Corinthian church. you got a very earthly, earth-minded, carnal church. And Paul is trying to bring them back to a deeper understanding of who God is and what he has done in their life. But he's dealing, again, with very religious spirit. He's dealing with a, a people that have been puffed up by, not, uh, by pride. And they have gotten too far away from the things of the Lord. And so there's this battle with food offered to idols. And people were eating the food and, and they were causing other younger Christians to stumble. And it became this huge debate as to what should a Christian eat meat that was in the marketplace that had formerly been on you know, some kind of idol uh, you know, involvement. If anyone imagines that he knows something, verse 2, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, uh, he is known by God. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, we all know that there is no such thing as a true God in an idol. I mean, there are idols, but they're not real. 
people believe them to be real, but they're not. And that's what he's trying to say. That there's, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things, are all things, and through whom we exist. He's going back to really the sustaining power and move of God to take care of his own. I like what John Calvin said. He refers to God and providence as God being the keeper of the keys, the keeper of the keys. Think about that. So I got my keys here. These are my keys. They don't belong to you. All of these keys have a purpose and a reason that have nothing to do with you. This is, these are my keys. I am the keeper. You have your own keys, and you're the keeper of your own keys. In other words, you're in control. I am sovereign over these keys. Does that make any sense? You're sovereign over your own keys. When Calvin said that God and his providence is, is the keeper of the keys, then he's referring to our life and all of life and all of creation and everything that he has made and everyone in it, in all of history, God is the one who is overseeing that. He is governing that down to every single detail. That's what he does. That's, that's because he loves his creation. He made his creation, loves his creation, and will take care of his creation. I love what Calvin was talking about there. He is the keeper of the keys. Now let's go to question number two. What does the providence of God have to do with our life? What is the problem? I'm going to give you three. You're not going to write these in if, you, if you're a note taker, and you'll try to remember these a little bit better if you write these. Just three really simple ways that providence provides for us. This is the, the application or the kind of the practical side of it. So write this down. Providence provides patience during painful seasons. Now, the old King James would use the word patience quite often. How about if we put another word in there that might kind of clarify something? Perseverance. So when you see patience used in your King James, more often than that, it's talking about perseverance. You can persevere. Uh, we would think patient is like somebody's bothering us, I'm gonna be patient with them. Well, you are persevering through that whole dynamic. But just think perseverance during painful seasons. Providence is gonna help you to be able to see things differently. And in the middle of your painful season, whatever you wanna call that, you can call that the deep waters, you could call that the dark night of the soul, whatever it may be that you're going through, then providence is gonna help you to persevere. And you're gonna be able to push through that and get to the other side of that if you're understanding that God is really governing even the difficult season of your life, even the darkness. God is still in control of that. He's still over that. You remember Nehemiah and Daniel, Daniel and Nehemiah, those, those guys went through a whole hard season of life and ministry. Of course, Esther, a tremendous woman of God. You got David, who much of his life is, is really under some serious hardship and affliction. These people understood God is over them. They understood that God was governing their life, and they were able to persevere in and through it all. You remember Moses, of course. Moses, one of the greatest leaders of all time. He had some really uh, difficult ministry, hard ministry, leading, what, two million people across the desert. And so he understood that God was providentially moving, and it helped him. It helped him through that season of his life. Here's number, letter B. Letter B would be gratitude during the good times. Now, this is, this is, I think this is significant. It makes, it makes a little bit, I don't know if it makes sense to you, but let me see if I can kind of tweak this because we just looked at 
something, patience during the painful seasons of your life, how is providence going to help you maintain a thankful heart even during the good times? You see, it's during the good times that you'll have a tendency to forget the Lord. This is what happens. So when the pain rises, then all of a sudden we press in on the Lord because our life really stinks. We can't stand what's going on. So we press into him and we start to get this revelation of the Lord and that he's sovereign and he's good and he's faithful and he's just and all of that. And then your life starts to get better again and then success comes back into your life. And what often will happen is that your gratitude quotient or, or level will start to drop and, and we take advantage of the goodness of the Lord. This, is, it's, this happened to, to my wife and I. We went through the pain, understood the providence, success started coming, and then we started to really take advantage, not take advantage, we took for granted uh, what God was doing. That's the great temptation. So God is good, and he's doing great things. He saw this happen in the life of the children of Israel as they're going from Egypt to the promised land. Of course, God delivers them, right, from the Egyptians using all of those plagues, and then Moses leads them out, and they're going across the land, and they're going to a good place. But what happened when they got halfway there? They start doing what? Complaining. Yeah, they weren't thankful. So, so manna falls from heaven. They're like, don't like it anymore. Is there anything else up there? You know, and so it's like, that happens to all of us. And so God is not pleased when his people are walking out of bondage and freedom, which we did in salvation or Egypt, and then we're moving through life, and then all of a sudden we get this critical spirit. And we start looking at the things of the Lord or the things that God has provided, and they no longer move us to, the, to gratitude and thanksgiving. And then we're in a dangerous place. Because you might not make it to the promised land. You might not make it all the way. And there might be some serious repercussions if we don't maintain gratitude in the midst of good times. Times are good. They really are good. Can you, can you say thank you, Lord? Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for what you are doing, what you're going to do. Thank you for those in my life that speak life into me. Thankful for my friends, my Christian friends. Thankful for my church. Can you give thanks? Heart of gratitude. Here's the third one. Triumph during temptations. Providence is going to help you with this. It's going, to, it's going to help me to always maintain this belief that I am always triumphing in Christ Jesus in the midst of my temptations. And temptations are many. Now, here's what I want you to do, because I'm going to try to prove this to you by looking at a man in Scripture named Joseph. So let's go to the last section of Scripture that I want to look at with you today. Go to Genesis chapter 50. It's the end of the book of Genesis, and we're going to see the culmination of this incredible story of this man of God. The story of Joseph has been so important and vital to many people's lives in their Christianity. Has Joseph ever meant anything to anybody here? The story of Joseph? It's, it's a phenomenal story of redemption. It's a story of the providence of God and how God is guiding his life, although his life at times looks like it's crashing all around him. And people are turning on him and betraying him, and he's being thrown into pits and in the prisons for lies and slander that he did not commit. And But behind it all, there's that, William Cooper said, you know, there's this smiling face of the father. And I don't think that Joseph at all times saw the smiling face of the father. And we're not going to always see that smiling face. And so Joseph probably was in a pit, probably in a prison, looking up at God going, I don't know about this life that I have, God. Look where I was. Look where I'm at. 
Where am I going? Please help me. I studied Joseph's life many, many years ago because our life was going through some serious seasons of betrayal and slander and pushback and all kinds of different things. And I said, God, I really need to know, like, uh, give me some people in Scripture that I can really follow through this. And so one of those was David and his relationship to Saul. And I did a lot of study on that relationship. The other relationship uh, that was Joseph with his brothers. And so I found every book on the life of Joseph that I could find. And I started to, to dig into Joseph's life. I was like, I was even talking to Joseph. It sounds kind of creepy. I'm not channeling Joseph or anything like that. So it's, I don't believe that. But I was just talking out loud and preaching to myself, Joseph, how did you do this? How did you turn to the Lord? How did you make it through this? And I would, I would have these conversations as I'm reading these books on Joseph's life. It was really quite interesting. I was, I was walking through a season, uh, a very difficult season with another man um, and his wife. His wife was dying of brain cancer. And so my wife and I would walk with this man and his wife at hospice. She was in a bed for a year as she went from bad to worse physically. She went from bad to better <laughs> because she eventually went to heaven. But in that process, we're meeting with them and loving on them, doing the Lord's table with them and counseling them and singing hymns because they liked the old hymns. And so we would sing hymns together. We would have communion together. And so I would walk with John through this whole process for a year. Well, he didn't know my study into the life of Joseph. He didn't know the depth of the pain that I was experiencing behind closed doors. But I went in to see John one day, and I sat there, and John's looking at me funny, and his wife is sleeping, and I'm just kind of looking back and forth into his eyes, and he goes, Chris, let me just back up real quick. A week before that, this is no joke, a week before this, I said, God, make me a Joseph. I want to be a Joseph. So now I'm in the hospice room, and John and I are having a conversation, and he looks over at me, and he has this look in his eyes, and he says, Chris, I had a dream about you last night. And I said, yeah, what's that, John? What is the dream? He said, in my dream, God is giving you a new name, and your new name is Joseph. I mean, it, just, it causes me to even have goosebumps now. The life of Joseph and the providence of God in and through his life saved me. It'll save you. It'll save you. This is how important this is that God is operating and sustaining and governing our lives down to every detail because some of the details that you're going to experience, you're not going to have any idea why it's happening to you. Chapter 50, can we fly through this together and then I'll land the plane. This is important. Then Joseph fell on his father's face. This is many years later. This is at the, at the end. He fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Joseph's father, what was his name? What's it say? Israel. So Joseph gets thrown in a pit, gets taken down to Egypt, rises up, oversees uh, all of the Pharaoh's, you know, business, basically. Israel's children, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt to survive a famine. So if his brothers and his father die, is there a nation called Israel? No. This is phenomenal. 
So Jesus Christ would co- come through this family line. Joseph goes sideways, and he doesn't make it through because of the providence of the Lord, and he goes off the rails. What happens to the Messiah coming? This is good stuff. This is deep stuff. This is, this is the invisible hand of God, like R.C. Sproul's talking about. Israel would not be. The Messiah would not be. Joseph cannot fail. He cannot fail. It's part of a divine plan that's unfolding providentially. The same thing with your life. Your life is not going to fail. It's not going to fail. Because God is that sovereign over your life and your circumstances and all of the details. You're saying, I could choose to walk away from God. And you're not going to choose to walk away from God. You're not going to do that. You might do it for a season, but you're ultimately going to come back. Let's keep going through this. I'm getting bogged down on the details. I can't just read the Bible. Honestly, I, I, I just can't read it because I have to look at individual words. And when the days of weeping for him uh, were part or passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I have hewn for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall, be, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. The Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household. Anyway, let's let's skip down. This is just a big, huge group of people coming to to do uh, the funeral and to take care of business uh, back home. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Miserim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he did commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah uh, to the east of Memory, which Abraham uh, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. What did he mean by that? All of the things that have happened in his life, he believed were under the sovereign watch care or the providence of the Lord. That everything that happened in his life from the good and the bad And all of the pain, all of the difficulty, all of the hardship, all of the loss, all of the betrayal, all of the lies, all of the slander, all of it somehow fell underneath the wisdom of the Lord so that he could say something like that. I am in the place of God. This is a beautiful thing because if you're in a place right now that's super hard and super dark and you can say with all sincerity that you are in the place of God, you have come to this this place of understanding the providence of the Lord in a very personal and profound way. Verse 20, and as you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do you think Joseph always believed that? Probably not, but he had gotten to that place. 
I think Joseph had a heart of gratitude. I think that he had the patience to persevere. I think he was moving beyond some of the hardships and the difficulties that he was really finding himself in. And the same thing will happen to you and I. We have to see this from a theological perspective, a biblical perspective, but also we need to see it supernaturally. And that I mean by that, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking this into us. And the Spirit of the Lord causing us to get to the place where we can say, you know what, God? You see things ahead of time. You saw my life ahead of time. You saw what was coming. And because you saw what was coming and you're super wise and you're super powerful, then I know that you're going to sustain me in all of that. That is, that is taking theology and using it to help you triumph in anything that you might be experiencing.